we commence today's shows uh, to, uh, unpacking the latest on the U.S. Supreme Court, ethics codes, controversial uh, cases, and other random acts of subversive anti-democratic behavior. Pleased to welcome back to this program the justice correspondent. Just mentioned his name yesterday. You recall that Katrina Vandenhoover was here yesterday, the uh, uh, executive editor and publisher of The Nation magazine. And now I'm pleased to be joined today, funny how the calendar works out, by her justice correspondent and columnist for The Nation magazine and the author of one of my favorite books, the New York Times bestselling text, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, and the host, busy guy he is, and the host of the new podcast, Contempt of Court with Ellie Mistall. Ellie Mistall. Ellie Mistall, how are you today, sir? I'm good, Tavis. I didn't know you had my boss on yesterday. She Hopefully was... that, that went well for me. <laughs> <laughs> it went extremely well for you. We uh, mentioned your name yesterday, uh, and uh, both gave you some mad love yesterday. And I had no idea at the time. I hadn't seen today. I hadn't seen today's calendar at that time. I did not know you were our guest in the first hour today. So just ironic that we mentioned yesterday, and here you are today. And I couldn't be happier uh, about it. So thank you for the hour. Thank you for the time, as always. Uh, let me let me let me just jump right in. Um, uh, speaking of Katrina, uh, we had a few minutes to talk about this yesterday, but we sort of saved this. Uh, conversation whenever you were coming on, and here you are today. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor, um, we know last Friday, I was off the air last Friday, we do a best of on Friday, so I'm never live on Fridays, but the news came Friday afternoon that Sandra Day O'Connor had passed, that's after Rosalind Carter, that's after Henry Kissinger, uh, then comes word that uh, Ms. O'Connor has passed away. I don't need to color this much for you, um, what are your thoughts about the court, your reflections about the court then, and where we are now uh, a couple decades later? Yeah, so look, if you had gone to me in law school, I was in law school from 2000 to 2003, if you had talked to me in law school and told me that in the future I would pine, I would be desperate for Republican justices in the mold of Sandra Day O'Connor, I would have laughed in your face. Mm -hmm. But here we are 20 years later, and man, if I could replace every single one of the Republican justices with Sandra Day O'Connor, we would be better off. Right Mm -hmm. Now, why is that? Well, it's because, look, Sandra Day O'Connor has a complicated legacy, all right? She ended up um, um, upholding abortion rights, for instance, right? But she ended up upholding them with many more restrictions. Um, She was the key vote in Bush v. Gore, um, which uh, uh, pushed the presidency, appointed George W. Bush as president, um, even though votes were still being counted in Florida uh, for Al Gore. She basically said that the reason why she did it so she didn't like Al Gore mm-hmm. and wanted to retire under a Republican president. So, like these are these these issues complicate her legacy. But the thing that O'Connor was about that we are sorely missing from the current crop of Supreme Court justices uh, of conservative Supreme Court justices is practicality. Mm-hmm. SDO Sandra Day O'Connor understood that her rulings would have a real-world impact on the ground for women, for minorities, for people trying to vote. And she ruled with an understanding of the practical realities on the ground. So I disagreed with her often. I agreed with her sometimes. But every time, she was concerned about how Mm. things would actually play out on the ground. That's Bush v. Gore, right? She didn't want a Democratic president. That's still a very practical-based um decision, right? Mm -hmm. The current conservative justices, from John Roberts all the way down um, to Amy Coney Barrett, um, these justices 
don't care about practicality, don't care about how their decisions are going to affect real people in their everyday's li- Let, everyday lives. When we come forward, I want to probe that. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking this question not out of, not out of any naivete, um, uh, and I'm not trying to, to, to goad you, but I, but I am curious, given what we learned in, civ- in civics classes, that the, 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 the legislative branch uh, writes the legislation, the executive branch <clears throat> signs it, passes it in law, so the the, exec, the uh, judicial branch uh, interprets the law. Um, that's their job, to interpret the law. What's that got to do with practicality? Why should we expect that a Supreme Court would be practical in its decisions? Just playing devil's advocate, we'll get Elliot Mastal's answer to that and a great deal more just getting started in this first hour of Tavis Smiley. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Sounds, Sounds different. different, huh? This, this is Tavis Smiley. This is Tavis Smiley in dialogue with Ellie Mastall, who is uh, the justice correspondent and columnist for The Nation magazine, author of the book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, and host of his own podcast these days, Contempt of Contempt, if I could say it, Contempt of Court with Ellie Mastall. So, Ellie, you were, you, were, you, were, you were just getting warmed up, man, and I didn't want to jump in. Uh, but you were talking about how, uh, how much more practical um, Sandra Day O'Connor and that court was those years ago. Uh, all those years ago in the court we have now. And I guess my question is, should the Supreme Court be concerned about practicality in its decisions, or is there is their job to, as we were taught in civics classes, interpret the law? Well, they're intertwined, of course, right? Okay. And as you well know, Congress passes laws, and then the Supreme Court throws those laws out. Well, if the Supreme Court is going to throw those laws out, they should have some understanding of what practically throwing those laws away will do on the ground. So if you look at an issue, let's say, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more in depth later, but if you look at the issue of voting rights, right? Mm-hmm. The Congress passed the Voting Rights Act, right? That's a law. All the Supreme Court has to do is allow that law to function, but they won't. And so when they throw out the Voting Rights Act or when they throw out pieces of the Voting Rights Act, they are unconcerned, or maybe they are well, they're all too concerned with, with the practical effects of how throwing out the Voting Rights Act is going to affect the ability for black and brown people to vote all across the country, right? Mm-hmm. Senator Day O'Connor, to her credit-ish, generally... <laughs> I like that, Cred- credit-ish. Okay, go ahead, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, generally understood that laws like the Voting Rights Act, while she might disagree with them in theory, had a practical effect of allowing black people to vote, and that was a good practical outcome, and so she upheld the Voting Rights Act. The current justices, like John Roberts, they don't care about black people voting, so they are able to throw out the Voting Rights Act um, piecemeal um, and significantly diminish the ability of black people to vote on the ground. Now, we, we saw that story um, just a week or two ago, uh, which was, uh, again, another gutting of, of the Voting Rights Act. Um, how, how do you read that in this, in this particular moment? Put it another way, how do you read the gutting of that act once again in this political climate? It's so destructive and dangerous and done on purpose, right? So just to back up, what happened is that the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers Arkansas, um, uh, Missouri, Minnesota, basically that kind of band of Midwestern um, states right there, um, they said that the Voting Rights Act uh, couldn't be enforced through private lawsuits. Mm -hmm. Now, private lawsuits is how we enforce 
most of our constitutional rights, right? Like the government does something, you're like, oh, you can't illegally search and seizure me, and you sue the government in your capacity as a private citizen whose rights have been violated, right? That's how almost all of our constitutional rights are enforced. Mm -hmm. The Eighth Circuit, a a Trump-appointed judge on the Eighth Circuit, I'll I'll, I'll remind people, um, ruled that these private lawsuits cannot be used to enforce the Voting Rights Act. They can be used everywhere else. So, for instance, the NRA can still sue the government over any gun law passed in any state or any federal gun law that they make. But according to this judge, the NAACP cannot sue to protect the Voting Rights Act. It is an awful decision that, again, functionally on the ground in Arkansas, Missouri, Minnesota, uh, the Dakotas, makes the Voting Rights Act unenforceable because... Go ahead. No, 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 because, finish your thought, I'm sorry, because. Because the way we enforce it is people suing the states when they violate the Voting Rights Act, and this judge says that people, private citizens, the NAACP, any other group you can think of, we can't sue. Only the Attorney General of the United States can sue the states for violations of the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, if you have Merrick Garland's number and he'll talk to you about doing his job, feel free to call him because he stopped <laughs> taking my call. <laughs> Uh, you're not taking mine either. So if, if it makes you feel any better, you're not taking mine either. Uh, indeed, uh, uh, taking my calls to come on this program uh, to, to, to take some questions. But I, I've just I've just reasoned and figured that he don't want none of this smoke. He don't want none of this smoke. So he's not nope. he's not, he not coming on. Uh, that that said, for those who for those who are not as steeped in the law as you are, and that means almost all of us. Um, what, I, what 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 I want you to drill down on a bit more. Is that when you made this? You offered this example a moment ago, Ellie, of the NRA and the NAACP. Uh, you said that you know we we can't sue the government privately around voting rights, but both the NRA and the NAACP are organizations; they're institutions. So tell me a bit more about why that distinction exists and, and why you use that particular analogy. Yeah, because again, if you think about all of our constitutional rights, from the First Amendment's right to free speech to the Eighth Amendment's right against uh, cruel and unusual punishment, how does that work out on the ground? Like, what happens to make that right come into being? Right. Mm-hmm. So the cop, you know, again, unconstitutionally um, uh, uh, violates your your rights. All right. What do you do about that? Does the cop just randomly say, well, you know what? That was actually a constitutional violation. I'm sorry, Tyrone Washington. Like, no, <laughs> that's not what happens. Tyrone Washington goes to the NAACP and says, look, my rights have been violated. And then the NAACP or the ACLU or some lawyer Mm -hmm. says, you know what, your rights have been violated. We're going to sue the cops. We're going to sue the state government for violation of your constitutional protections, or we're going to sue the FBI. We're going to sue the federal government for a violation of your constitutional protections. That's what makes the government not violate your constitutional rights, right? Mm-hmm. The, the threat of lawsuit, the threat of litigation, the threat of punishment if they violate your rights. Well, in the voting rights context, now in these seven states covered by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, you can't do that lawsuit. So if the state of Missouri violates your voting rights act, your voting uh, uh, rights under the Voting Rights Act or under the Fifteenth Amendment of the Constitution. You can't sue them. You can't say, "Hey, you denied me my right to vote." You can't do that to the state of Missouri because of this judge's ruling. You can't go to the NAACP and and ask them to sue on your behalf because of this judge's ruling. Conversely, if you talk about any of our other constitutional rights, gun rights, for instance. Mm-hmm. You can, if the, if the government comes and takes your 
Bambi killer rifle, <laughs> right? You can still sue. You can go to the NRA. They took my. They took my gun. What up? And then the government uh, can be sued by the NRA. So it's only in this one section of our laws, voting rights, the most arguably the most critical right so, so we I'm, have. It's so, only here we Again, not naive in asking this, uh, but, but let me just do it anyway. Why voting rights? Why this narrow freedom? Well, you have to ask Republicans. You have to ask Republicans why they are so afraid yes. of black and brown people voting in the various states. Why, mm. of all the rights, this is the one they hone in on. And look, I've written this in the, in the past. The thing that links a Reagan judge to an H.W. Bush judge to a W. Bush judge to a Trump judge, the thing that links them all together mm. is their hatred of the Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. That's the through line. It's not abortion rights. It's not LGBTQ rights. Obviously, the more recent Bush and Trump appointees hate LGBTQ rights and abortion rights very much. But the through line for all of them is a shared hatred of the Voting Rights Act, and we see that time and time again. John mm-hmm. Roberts, the biggest enemy the Voting Rights Act has ever seen um, on the Supreme Court since the, since the act was passed in the 60s. Um, and so they're going after this idea that black people should have the right to vote freely and fairly in every election. That's what the Trump judge is doing, and that's what will eventually be appealed to the 6-3 to three conservative Supreme Court. Mm. So let me let me let me let me offer this um, as a conundrum that um, I think many of us are wrestling with as well. Uh, and again, you're the right person to ask this of. So generally speaking, broadly speaking, when you think of Republicans, you said a moment ago, ask the Republicans. Um, let's not do that. But anyway, uh, <laughs> generally speaking, Republicans are all about getting government and keeping government out of our lives. That's their mantra. There's too much government in our lives. That was Ronald Reagan's mantra. Let's get government out of your life. So that's that that's the frame that they that they that they're always in. And yet and yet this particular Supreme Court seems to have an issue with personal freedoms. You mentioned two or three of them already. So juxtapose for me this notion that they advance politically that government should get out of your life and yet they are attacking vociferously personal freedoms. Does that make sense? As a question? Yeah, I mean, look, they've, they, well, that's because the government out of your life has always been a bit of a lie, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they don't want government out of your life. They want government really, really small so it can fit into your uterus. Like, mm-hmm. that has been how small they want the government to be always, right? What I think the better way of understanding what conservative justices are doing is that they feel that this country took a wrong turn in the 1960s and early 1970s. Mm-hmm. They think that the gains of the civil rights movement was the wrong turn this country took. And if you understand that from 30,000 feet what their project is on the Supreme Court, it is simply to undo all of the gains from the civil rights era. That's why voting rights is so critical, because the gains of the civil rights era are, you know, popular. And not just popular with black people. They're popular with brown people. They're popular with a lot of white people. White people love contraception. White people <laughs> love reproductive freedom. And white people generally love voting. So th- they understand that these laws that they want to take away are popular, which is why they go after the Voting Rights Act first. Because you can't... Look, Republicans are seeing this all around the country. 
after their Dobbs decision, which revoked Roe v. Wade and revoked abortion rights, they've been getting whooped in election after election after election mm-hmm. based on the abortion issue, right? So Republicans understand that they're, they're cons- the conservative justices on the Supreme Court understand that their rulings are unpopular and understand that their rulings will be overturned by the ballot if you let everybody vote. Mm-hmm. And so what they're trying to do is to stop everybody from voting. And that's why these attacks on the Voting Rights Act are so consistent and so brazen mm-hmm. at this point, because they can't do the rest of their project if... If, if you have voting rights, they can't do the rest of the project. Yeah. So you have to attack voting rights in order to get everything else together. As always, you break it down in ways we can all follow and understand. So here's my next question. Um, back to that civics class. Um, government writes the laws. Uh, the Supreme Court, the uh, justice uh, system in this country interprets the laws. So what role then does, does, does the Senate, does Congress have in this regard? We know that they have uh, infamously done nothing to move the needle on voting rights. Some, some of that had to do with Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Cinema, as we well know. But what, what role then now does the legislature play or can they play with regard to what the Supreme Court is doing to gut voting rights? Well, here's the thing. The role that Congress and the Senate needs to play is to reform the Supreme Court. Mm. Because the Supreme Court doesn't merely interpret laws anymore. The Supreme Court has what's best understood as a veto over the two elected branches of government, right? So the president can sign an executive order. Congress can pass a law signed by the president. The Supreme Court can veto that law in the middle of the night with five votes. And what we've seen is that the conservatives are quite willing to veto mm-hmm. laws passed by Congress. Certainly, if a Democratic law is passed, they're happy to veto it. So you can't really, I, I've said this a lot, but there is nothing that you care about that can survive a 6-3 to three conservative court. You can come up with the greatest climate legislation in the world. The Supreme Court will veto that before breakfast. Tavis, I just got on the phone with you. I just spent two hours listening to a Supreme Court argument where they are going to try to veto the wealth tax before the wealth tax has even been passed. Mm-hmm. They are taking <laughs> an argument to preemptively wow. veto any attempt to pass a wealth tax based on redefining the 16th Amendment of the Constitution, which is our taxation amendment in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So this is what I'm saying. If you don't control the Supreme Court, if you don't reform and fix the Supreme Court, you've got nothing. You can pass all the laws you want. Yeah. The Supreme Court will walk in and, and overturn them. Specifically with voting rights, look, there's always... Congress should have passed the For the People Act that Joe Manchin wouldn't support. They should end the filibuster. I'm not being defeatist. Congress should keep trying. Congress should keep forcing the Supreme Court to veto them. Mm -hmm. Congress should do more. But fundamentally, from 30,000 feet, if you don't reform the court, you're you're not going to win these battles. Uh, i got 45 seconds for your comment on this, then we'll move forward on some other issues when we... uh... Uh, when we continue this dialogue. Um, the irony is I listen to you speak about the way this Supreme Court is moving is that it's always Republicans who run for office on the notion of doing away with activist judges. Isn't that funny? <laughs> yes. It's, it's, this Supreme Court has been the most activist Supreme Court in history because it not only overturns laws of Congress, right, it also overturns itself. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court ignores <laughs> its own precedents 
to make new law and to stop basically anything approaching a liberal agenda in this country. Yep, uh, as I said, and yet when they run for office, they want to do away with activist judges. I digress. Uh, so much more to, to talk about when we come forward, including uh, Ellie just mentioned uh, abortion uh, a moment ago, woman's right to choose. And I was just reading a story last night, maybe early this morning. Uh, Democratic governors uh, were talking to President Biden and giving him some advice about the election. Uh, and they said to him that he should talk less about Trump and more about abortion, less about Trump and more about abortion, given what the Supreme Court has done. I'm going to ask Ellie when we come forward politically, whether he thinks that sound advice to the president. And then um, uh, speaking of issues that are somewhat laughable, we'll talk about this so-called code of ethics uh, that the Supreme Court has been pushed into. Uh, addressing and more. Our guest is Ellie Mistal, the uh, justice correspondent and columnist for The Nation magazine, uh, host of the podcast Contempt of Court with Ellie Mistal. More with Ellie when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. For all the freedom loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like freedom. Ready to re examine your assumptions and expand your inventory, expand of ideas? Your inventory of ideas? More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. In truth, uh, that's really what uh, that's what Ellie Mustall does. Challenges you to re-examine the assumptions that you hold, and helps you to expand your inventory of ideas. Always delighted to be in dialogue with him. He is the justice correspondent and columnist for the Nation magazine, and host of his own podcast, Contempt of Court, with Ellie Mustall. We are talking in this hour, Supreme Court politics or the politics of the Supreme Court, if you prefer. Either way, uh, Ellie's the man, and I'm always uh, delighted, to, again, to be in conversation with him. So, Ellie, I want to get to Trump uh, in a moment here. Um, uh, he doesn't show up for these presidential debates, and yet Fox is giving him another town hall tonight uh, with Sean Hannity in Iowa. Well, that's tonight. Tomorrow, of course, tomorrow night, is the next uh, GOP presidential debate, again, at which he will not be present. But the night before, he gets his own town hall on Fox uh, in, in Iowa. Uh, I digress on that for the moment. But speaking of Trump and, and Joe Biden, uh, the presumptive nominees of their party in this next uh, uh, presidential race. So the Democratic governors, I guess, had access to President Biden uh, yesterday, day before, something like that. Uh, and their advice to him was to talk less about Trump and more about abortion. They see that as a winning issue. Since we're talking about uh, this issue because of what the Supreme Court did on Roe v. Wade, your thoughts on that advice? Yeah, yeah so I think that's exactly the right advice, and I hope Joe Biden takes it for two reasons. One is the incredible salience of the abortion issue on the ground in the various states. Yo, we just won the governorship of Kentucky again by eight points based on this issue, right? We just whooped Daniel um, uh, Cameron, who, by the way, shout out to black people in Kentucky for showing up against the guy um, who let Breonna Taylor's murderers yeah, that's off. Right. That's right. Good, good looking out Kentucky black people. Yeah. But in general, we won that race because of the abortion issue. Glenn Youngkin in, in uh, Virginia got his whole slate of delegates basically revoked on the abortion issue. We've had wins in Iowa. We've had wins in Kansas on the abortion issue. It's incredibly salient. And Biden should, A, learn how to say the word abortion, and then <laughs> learn how to say we are for it. 
as Democrats, because that has real punch in the various states where people understand that their abortion rights are under attack, their reproductive rights are under attack, and don't forget, you should also Biden should also make the the connection between abortion rights and contraception rights because that's what they're coming for next. There are already cases in the pipeline that could. Of impact people's ability to access contraception. And if you think abortion is popular, wait till I tell you about Trojans, all right? Mm. Like, those are real popular. <laughs> so we should obviously be, be running on that. But the other reason why that works is that the Trump is very bad argument just doesn't have the salience that Democrats want it to have. Now, look, I am a single-issue voter on the Supreme Court. And if I wasn't a single-issue voter on the Supreme Court, I would be a single-issue voter against authoritarianism. (laughs) And so both of those reasons mean that you don't have to worry about my vote against Trump. But, Tavis, you know you're out in the community. You talk to young brothers out there and just rolling up to them and being like, well, you know, Trump is a bad man. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make them want to vote for Biden. I can argue with them until I'm blue in the face, but the on the ground in our communities, because Trump has been normalized, right? Because mm-hmm. he gets so much press attention, because Trump was already president and we didn't end up in a nuclear holocaust, because of all of these reasons, when you talk to younger black people simply saying, you got to go stand in line for eight hours on election day because of the Voting Rights Act is being taken away, um, to vote against Trump, that doesn't work. You need to offer them a positive thing to vote for, not just something to vote against. Yeah. Having control over your own body, that's a positive thing to vote for. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, being able to plan your own families, that's a positive thing to vote for. Voting against Trump is not a positive thing to vote for, and so that argument, Trump is going to be worse, just isn't landing the way mm. the Democrats wanted to land. Let me ask a question about language. Um, you, you mentioned a moment ago, uh, and uh, somewhat humorously, but also pretty pretty seriously, uh, that, that Biden should learn to say the word abortion. That was your line. And the minute, the minute you said that, Elliot, my mind went to uh, Frank Luntz, uh, who, as you know, is um, the uh, poster, has been for years, a favorite poster of Republicans. He wrote a book years ago. I remember interviewing Frank about this. I know I've known Frank for years. And the book was called Words That Work, Words That Work. And the thing that, that Frank Luntz mastered, and frankly, Newt Gingrich mastered, and Frank worked with Newt Gingrich, they mastered this art of teaching Republicans how to language their argument the words that actually work. I don't know what polling the Biden administration has, but it seems to me there is some reason that Joe Biden won't say the word abortion. Uh, and since you went so hard on it, I'm wondering whether or not that is, in fact, the wrong word or the wrong the wrong way to phrase it. The fact that it is a winning issue in states across the country doesn't mean that he's comfortable saying it. And again, if it's reproductive rights or uh, or, or uh, bodily autonomy, that, that's too fancy. But whatever it is, I'm wondering whether or not you think it's a language issue with him because, again, of that argument that some words work, some words don't. You say abortion. And I think when people hear the word abortion, they don't think about my right to choose they think about killing babies. I think it's because Republicans successfully kind of changed the definition of abortion to something that happens to like a Mm one-year-old. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you look at the Republican advertising around abortion, it's always like an actual baby who's, like, eating ice cream and, like, has hopes and dreams, right? They don't, they, 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 they age the, the, the fetus up to the point mm-hmm. where, like, they're in school mm-hmm. and then say abortion is killing them, <laughs> right? And so, like, th- that's where the abortion debate, if you talk to people, and I have had, had to do this so much before, uh, after the Dobbs decision, if you talk to people about what a reasonable compromise on abortion might look like, and then tell them, you know, how about we have a compromise? After the, the, the fetus can survive on its own, abortion is illegal. But before that point, before viability, when the fetus is directly dependent on the mother for any chance at life, the mother should retain their bodily autonomy rights. If you phrase it like that, people are like, oh, that's a great compromise. That was the compromise in Roe. Mm-hmm. That is literally what Roe said, mm-hmm. right? And so where Republicans have kind of overplayed their hand is that they think most of the people in this country are for complete abortion bans, and that is just not true. Most people in this country are for some kind of compromise, some kind of idea that before a certain point on the calendar, the mother retains her bodily autonomy rights. And after some point, she loses them. That's the compromise that most Americans are, and look, I'm not like most Americans, but, <laughs> uh, but most Americans are for that compromise. And that's all the Democrats have to be arguing for, a reasonable compromise on, on when the state can take away somebody's right to, right to choose. Yeah. Feet of viability, which was the standard in Roe v. Wade, is the popular compromise position yeah. and democrats can position themselves as being in favor of compromise while republicans are in favor of absolutism yeah. and that also doesn't play well at the polls as i said a moment ago tonight uh donald trump is being given yet another uh town hall uh hosted by sean hannity in iowa uh, because tomorrow night there is a presidential debate uh, amongst the other gop candidates those who are running for second nikki haley seems to be gaining a little traction uh but that's what's on the the, the gop docket so we'll talk when we come forward where the Supreme Court is concerned, how would Trump govern if he wins a second term? We know what he did with the Supreme Court. We know the picks he had, the bites at the apple that he had. But how does Elie Mustall think Trump would govern vis-a-vis our laws, vis-a-vis the Supreme Court, um, if he is granted or given by uh, these Americans who are most unlike Elie Mustall <laughs> uh, a second term? And then I-, I will tell you this, and we'll have some fun with this. If Ellie Mustall were anybody other than Ellie Mustall, I'd be spanking him on his behind right now about being a single-issue voter. You heard him say it proudly. I am a single-issue voter. It's the Supreme Court for me. I'd be spanking him if he were anybody else telling me on this program that you were a single-issue voter. We'll probe that. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. From the Merck Park with love, love, this is Tavis Smiley. Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. Ellie Mustall, how can you be a single-issue voter, black man? <laughs> well, for me, it's pretty simple because all of the things that I care about, all of the rights and responsibilities that I want for me and my children, all of that flows through the Supreme Court. So I think about it in terms of what's going to help my kids. Mm-hmm. And helping my kids involves not appointing young Republicans to hold power in this country for 30 years. So it ends up being pretty simple for me. Got it. Um, in is, the primaries, look, Tavis, in yeah. the primaries, it's all, oh. Like, <laughs> 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 that's where I end up with some problems. 
Yeah, yeah. I, the, the answer was funny. The sound effects were even funnier. Uh, I, I appreciate both. So uh, imagine, if you will, I know you don't want to, but imagine, if you will, uh, that Donald Trump is, in fact, elected to a second term. The polls do not look encouraging at the moment for Joe Biden. We're, we're, we're a year out, but these polls have a pattern, as I keep saying, and I'm scared as all, uh, as all get out. Uh, and yet, if Donald Trump is, in fact, elected to a second term, how much worse will he be? How much worse, in fact, can he be when it comes to the U.S. Supreme Court? Um, whatever the top level of worse is, is <laughs> infinitely worse yeah. um, than I think most people are imagining. I think because a Republican white woman said this, I can now say this too. Liz Cheney <laughs> went on TV over the weekend and pointed out that Trump, if he's reelected, will never leave office again. That is absolutely true. If Trump is reelected, he ain't going nowhere for the rest of his natural life. You can count on it. There will not be a 2028 presidential election where he is term limited out. Oh, hell no. He is going to find some way around the 22nd Amendment or just ignore it and run for a third term like FDR um, did once back in the day. Um, so he, he is never leaving office again. And he, he's got some experience now on figuring out who he needs and who he doesn't need to erect a permanent authoritarian government under his control. He's done all of the scouting, if you will. Like the, you think of the first term as him scouting. Now he knows who he needs to draft into the permanent team, and he is going to surround himself with not just yes-men, but yes-men who are eager to be part of an authoritarian government, as we see in some teapot dictatorships around the world, to try to enact permanent partisan control over this country, that's what we have coming for us. Yeah. The Supreme Court, specifically on that, you think that there is a Supreme Court ruling that Trump will respect if he gets a second term? I'm going to tell you, there's not. Mm. He'll agree with the Supreme Court when, he, when the Supreme Court agrees with him, and he will absolutely disregard the Supreme Court when it tries mm. to restrain him in any way. That's what we're looking for. towards. That's why the stakes are so high. Okay. All right. So maybe I'm rethinking Ellie's position on being a single issue voter. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe after that answer, maybe I'm rethinking that. In our remaining moments with Ellie Mustall, we'll get his take on uh, this uh, talk of a code of ethics finally inside the U.S. Supreme Court. You're listening to Tavis Smile. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically blind. You're tapped into Tavis Smile. Smart talk for curious people just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Tavis Smiley and uh, Ellie Mastall. All right, Ellie, we got about four minutes left. I saved this for last. Uh, I passed the mic to you. You can take as much time as you want, uh, uh, as long as you don't laugh your way all the way through it. Uh, talking about this so-called code of ethics at the U.S. Supreme Court, I, I, I passed the mic to the gentleman uh, from Contempt of Court with Ellie Mastall. It is such a joke, Tavis. Look, the best way I can explain how much of a foolish errand this ethics code is, this so-called ethics code is, is that the, the thing that was released by the Supreme Court does not hold accountable Clarence Thomas for anything that he's done, mm -hmm. right? So that's how you know it's not a real ethics code. If your ethics code says that everything that Clarence Thomas does is okay, then it's not a real ethics code, right? It is a self-serving attempt to post ex post facto justify the, the actions of the justices like Clarence Thomas, like Samuel Alito, right? 
Um, as many have pointed out, there is no enforcement measure in this ethics code at all. So, like, there's nothing that says the ju- that 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 punishes the justices should they violate this self-serving ethics codes. Um, one of the things that I that I liked that I did was I did a control f control find. The word shall um, appears zero times in the ethics code. The word should appears fifty-three times. Right, so. Justices basically shouldn't take bribes, but they won't, but shall not take bribes. No, 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 no. we're not going to go that far, right? So the, the entire thing, why is it here? Well, you've got to look at what's happening at the Senate Judiciary Committee. Right now, the Senate Judiciary Committee is trying to subpoena Leonard Leo, Harlan Crow, other Republican sugar daddies of the Supreme Court justices, Lindsey Graham throwing a hissy fit, Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz, they're all up in a huff over the potential to subpoena their donors. The Supreme, a, a, while the Republicans were throwing their hissy fit in the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings, they kept referencing this fake ethics code, right? Oh, we don't have to subpoena Harlan Crow because now the Supreme Court has an ethics code. That's the, that's the only reason why it's there. Mm-hmm. It was John Roberts and his cronies trying to protect their daddies like Harlan Crow from public scrutiny. That's why they released this ethics code. Nobody should take it seriously. Congress, Dick Durbin, the Senate still must act and impose an ethics code that has actual penalties for the justices if they act like Clarence Thomas. That is the distinction of the day. Shall versus should. It makes a big <laughs> difference. Shall versus should. In the 45 seconds I have left, uh, again, no naivete in, in this query, but why are Dick Durbin and Democrats so afraid of taking on this issue and putting some teeth in this thing? It's, you know, well, look at the Senate itself, right? Like, the, the Senate trying to legislate what is corrupt or not, they don't exactly have clean hands yeah. when it comes to that <laughs> issue. And so they're worried about that. They're also worried that anything that they say now will be used against Democratic justices in the future, which is, you know, it's, a, it's the Hunter Biden worry, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, we impeach Trump. They'll impeach Hunter Biden. Yeah, sure, they will. They're going to do that anyway. That yeah. doesn't mean that we shouldn't have real ethics for the highest court in the land. Yeah, there is no one better. Uh, there are others who've done it longer, but no one better uh, at dissecting the, the machinations and the shenanigans of this Supreme Court uh, than Ellie Mustall, New York Times, best-selling author of one of my favorite texts, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, justice correspondent and columnist for The Nation magazine, and now host of his own podcast, Contempt of Court with Ellie Mustall. Ellie Mustall, always, always, always delighted in our dialogue. Thank you for your time, my friend. Happy holidays to you. Happy holidays, Tavis. Talk to you soon.